Good morning, everybody. Well, what a day, eh? Start uh, back at church. We have daylight savings starting, uh, school holidays starting, and it's raining. It's like, wow. But hey, it's great to be here, and it's good to have some lovely faces in front of me rather than staring at that camera at the back there as I try to bring a message on Sunday. But um, it's unusual times, isn't it? And uh, I don't know about you, but it feels to me that this year has started three times now. It started in January, then it started again after the first lockdown, and it's starting again now, and next week it's October. Wow. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue on this morning looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, We're getting right into the, well, am I allowed to use the word guts? We're right in the guts of it. This is really the heavy stuff that makes a huge difference in our lives if we apply what it is that Paul is saying and what Paul has said to the church for 2,000 years. Remember that the the words that we're looking at today have resonated with generation upon generation upon generation of people and have given them life, given them sustenance, given them energy, given them vision. That's the beautiful thing about these letters is that we connect with every generation that's gone before us and these words have impacted upon us as they've impacted upon previous generations. So we stand in this wonderful tradition Now, this morning, I'm calling the message uh, sweat. Sweat. Not a popular term, and as much as um, women glow, men perspire, and horses sweat, apparently, I was told once, uh, by a lady who I mentioned that she was sweating. (laughs) Uh, It's not the thing to do, apparently. Uh, She was glowing. Anyway, I've been um, sweating away over the last month or so when I've been... getting uh, firewood organised for next year. Eh? Like a good little squirrel getting things organised for next year. It's actually a, a good task. They say firewood makes you warm more than once. Well, I, I certainly was warm after a day of splitting and chainsawing and stacking. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at some scriptures that talk about the energy that we bring to our Christian faith. The energy that we bring to our Christian faith. We know what Christ has done for us. That triggers in us a response, and that response is a response of faith and a response of energy, a response of how it is that we will take what God has given us, make that known, and allow our story to become part of the biggest story of all these generations that have come before us. It's powerful, and it's awesome in the truest sense of the word. What we find when we look through Corinthians is that there's this theme that keeps on coming up, and we realize after a little while, that Paul is really serious about this theme. And this theme is about freedom. Paul is saying to us, we are free in Christ, not only from the Old Testament law and the the boundaries that that established, but we're free to be what it is that God has called us to be, and we're free to make choices in keeping with what we feel is the appropriate way to express our lives, our gifts, in keeping with what would glorify God. And that freedom is an enormous responsibility. It's one of the exceptions in an exceptional way that defines Christian faith from all other religions. And as much as we are called to be free to express our faith in a way that we can see it working and changing our world around us, we're not constrained to laws which say you must act this way or that way, but we are given a freedom, and that freedom is an enormously courageous step on behalf of God, wouldn't you think? Because I don't know about you, I don't think I could give me as much freedom as God gives me, because I know me, but yet he trusts me to grow up into that freedom, grow up into that level of responsibility. 
And we all have had these opportunities over the years to um, take freedom and express it poorly. You know, the um, interesting thing we've had over the last few months is that um, when you're in lockdown, you've been asked to work from home. And that's created a whole new freedom for a whole lot of people who have never experienced that before. Work from home and you haven't got the boss eyeballing you when you are messing around or talking too long over the water cooler. Uh, but at home, you can sit up in your own office there and you can sort of do your thing, you know, whatever your might, thing might be. And after half an hour, you're sort of like, oh, what's in the fridge? Oh, nothing different to what it was half an hour ago. You know, it's pretty boring. Um, oh, gee, man. Oh, I think I owe myself a little break. I'll just jump on Trade Me for a while. Ooh, look at that's just come up. Ooh, right? You know, and all of a sudden, your freedom is being used in a way that's not very productive. But that seems to be the common challenge that people are facing. There's also freedom when young people are released from home and head off to university and they say, man, I'm free, I'm free indeed, you know, I don't have to be bound by the restraints that mum and dad have put upon me and my curfew times and I can do what I want when I want, how I want, with whoever I want. All of that freedom. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to act with responsibility, or you're just going to cut loose and wait for someone to pick up the pieces in three or four years' time in the hope that you have a degree tagged to your name. That's a lot of what university looks like. But Paul is talking about a freedom here that is unique, unique to Christianity because it talks about us being in partnership with God. See, the beauty about freedom is that we partner. We don't necessarily, uh, we aren't necessarily subservient in a demeaning way. We're partnering with Christ to make God known. So here's this verse that we've looked at back in chapter 6, and it says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now these words look like they're so permissive that they're dangerous, but yet there's a constraint within them. What's beneficial, and what is it that you can do, but you won't be mastered by it? It won't overwhelm you, overcome you, okay? It won't control you. And so Paul here in chapter 6 is quoting back to the church a line that is very, very dominant within their community. I'm free, aren't I? I'm free from the law. I'm free from uh, having to pay the price of my own sin. I'm set free. Now, Paul is going to mention this again, what we would say, in a couple of weeks' time. All right, He's going to pick it up again in uh, chapter 10. But he also picks up the same theme again. Here we are in chapter 9. And we're starting with that this morning in the text that we're looking at. Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Well, if there was ever a personal mission statement that defined Paul, this would be it, wouldn't it? Okay. I am free and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He's got reason, he's got motivation, and he's got identity. He knows who he is. However, these words, which might sound like they're talking completely about our spirituality here, are actually words that are taken from the culture. Now, let me explain that. You see, within Rome, people were um, defined by their status of citizenship. If you were a noble, you were born to nobility, and uh, that defined you. Then there were the other groups who were, they called them equestrians. Equestrians were those who literally had the permission to own a horse. Okay, they were sort of the people just below the nobles, trade, uh, people in trades or merchants who have done well in life. 
and have earned the right to uh, express themselves with the money they've earned and they could own a horse. Below them were freed men or freed women. Okay, these people were able to mix it up in any circle they wanted. Uh, they had the right to vote, which was a big thing in this new democracy. Uh, but they were certainly better off than the 40% of people who were slaves. Now, slaves sounds really, really tough place to be. Slavery wasn't the institution that we would imagine it to be. Um, to a degree, it's a little bit like being employed. You were looked after. Sometimes you put yourself into slavery because you owed somebody money, you owed debt. And so it was a part of the culture at the time. But for Paul, he was part of this, this amazing thing called the Roman Empire. And you may have seen these letters, SPQR. Okay, they stand for Senatus Populus K Romanus, which is the Senate, the governing body, the people who constitute the Roman Empire. Okay, and it was this configuration of democracy and yet a little, quite a big bit of dictatorship all thrown together. Okay, so they had democracy, but then they would select a uh, emperor and he would become a dictator, so they'd murder him often. That was sort of the way it went. Okay, um, but senatus literally means assembly of old men. <laughs> so, give you an idea of who was running the show. Okay, senatus. Now you know why, how we get the word senile comes from that same S-E-N, old. Okay, populace, the population, and what was going on here is Paul himself was a citizen of Rome. He was born in a place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey not far away from the island of Cyprus, as if anybody has got some understanding of the Mediterranean there. But Paul, being a freed man, had the right to vote. He had the right to uh, access certain privileges. And later on in the book of Acts, when Paul was getting into his old age, he was arrested, and the Jewish community wanted to put him to death. Paul did something that only freed people can do, and that was he appealed to Caesar. If you had a death sentence over you, you could have your court hearing essentially heard by the highest authority in the land, Caesar. Paul finishes his days, writes a lot of his letters that we have in Scripture from a prison in Rome while he's waiting for this court case to come. So here is Paul describing himself as a free man, free in Christ, but also free as a citizen. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Sorry, to win as many as possible. And so for Paul, his spirituality and his identity as a citizen were wrapped up in this, this comment. This identified Paul in more ways than one. But here Paul moves on to these powerful, powerful scriptures where he takes an illustration of everyday life within the Corinthian community or everyday understanding within the Corinthian community and he uses it to describe how his spiritual life is outworked. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 
Now, what Paul is describing here is some, in the context of something that was well-known within Corinth. In fact, Corinth was famous for this, and as the Isthmian Games, all right? Isthmian Games, which happened every two years. Now, I don't know about you, but um, how many of you look forward to Athletics Day at school, okay? Some of you, obviously fast runners or high jumpers, uh, uh, were the sort of people who look forward to uh, that event. I can remember the Tapuna School Athletics Day uh, held at Maramatanga Park. I was in my last year, Form 2, Year 8. Thank you, Rob. And um, I'd never ever won a running race in my life, okay? My, my, uh, my legs have, came out with this uh, low-ratio gearbox designed for um, strength, not speed. And um, so therefore, running was never my thing. Okay, I remember one year at the athletics club, I got the prize, the trophy for sportsmanship and general behavior, which meant that I turned up, got last consistently and didn't cry about it. Okay, so anyway, this particular hot, hot, hot summer's day, and um, it was around about the time when the Commonwealth Games were held in New Zealand in 1976. Now we're going way back. John Walker and uh, Dick Quacks and these other famous athletes have been really showing off their talents. So all of us now knew by watching the magic of this uh, Commonwealth Games how to run a race strategically, strategically. So we had the 400 meter race. All the boys in my class lined up and um, <clears throat> they were all there saying, hey, listen, you know what we've got to do? We've got to go slow to start off with. This is a long race, you've got to go slow. Just save your sprint for the end. Go slow, go slow. It's all talking, talking it up. Now, my dad was there at the time. He was one of the marshals. You know, his parents would turn up. And he, he, uh, he gives me a, a wink nod. And he comes over and he goes, come here, come here, come here. Because he could hear the boys with their strategic plan. And he goes, just run like hell. Now, I'm sure you shouldn't mention hell in the context of the church, but that's literally what he said, okay? Well, he heard the boys have their strategic plan of how to save the energy, and he's told me to run as fast as I could. So the gun went, and I ran as fast as I could, and I experienced something I never experienced before, a running race where there was no one in front of me. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I almost get lost, you know? So anyway, we ran 200 metres, I was still in front. 300 metres, I was still in front. 350 metres, I was still in front. 380 metres, and two guys went, choo, choo, and I got third. <laughs> Never ever got a place in a running race before, but you know, here I am 43 years later, and I still remember it, so it must have been significant. <laughs> but what Paul is doing is he's identifying with us in exactly the same way. Now, he's not saying run like hell, but he's saying run as fast as you can, isn't he? Run as fast as you can. You only get one crack at this. Run as fast as you can. Now, the Isthmian Games had all of these amazing events going on. Some of them were very familiar with, some of them were not. Running, boxing, wrestling, long jump, discus, javelin, singing, poetry, and chariot racing. Well, let me talk about the singing for a moment. It wasn't like American Idol where somebody gets two minutes and, and a backing track and out they go. These games took literally weeks to complete. Uh, complete. And what would happen is you would get literally hours to sing all the songs in your repertoire. So the audience would come in, they would sit and they would listen. One of the guys who decided he'd enter in these games was uh, Nero. Nero was the Caesar in Rome. And uh, by any stretch of the imagination, he was a nut job. 
Okay, he was just absolutely out to lunch. He ordered that when he started singing, the doors had to be locked, no one was allowed to leave. <laughs> it's, this, is, this is straight out of the history books. Apparently some people faked their own death. <laughs> and the, faked their own death and were carried out. And when Caesar, uh, when Nero said, what's happening? They said, he's dead, he's dead. <laughs> just to get out of there. But on top of that, Nero won the competition because <laughs> no one was brave enough to say that he didn't win the competition. So anyway, chariot racing in the year 392 and 396, uh, a woman named Kinesis raced her father's horses in the chariot race and won. She beat all the boys, okay? Apparently she crashed into all of them. No, 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 it's not true. No, it's not true. It's almost politically incorrect to say a joke like that, isn't it? You know, you know how it is? Anyway, the prize never went to the rider of the horses. The prize in this case always went to the owner of the stable. So it was her father who got the, the big prize and she got a stick of salary, which was the prize that everybody got for winning something. How's that? Stick of salary. It wasn't until about the second century BC they shifted it to a wreath of pine that they'd put on their head. But prior to that, they'd get given salary. Go figure. Okay. That's where we get our word salary from, by the way. It's true. It's true. It's true. You look it up. If I'm wrong, I won't be here next week. Here's a guy by the name of, and I've forgotten his name, Agathos Daemon. Now, I have to turn to read this because I can't read it from any direction. Um, so he was a wrestler and a boxer. And if you see the picture there on his hands, he's got leather for gloves. Either. And uh, these boxing fights were nothing like we'd see today. The boxing fights continued until someone was knocked out cold. Okay, so you notice there that this is an inscription over his tomb, and this is why he's famous. Uh, at Olympia, he, Agathos, died boxing in the stadium, having prayed to Zeus for either the crown or death. Age 35, farewell, he died. Okay, so he prayed to the god of sports, Zeus, that he would either get a, a wreath, in other words, he'd win, or he'd die. He died. Farewell. Okay, so you can see how committed people were to these things. Uh, what would happen is the Corinthian Games, known as the Isthmian Games, ha happened every two years. So there was a gap in between. And one of the gaps was filled by what's called the Nemean Games, and the fourth year was filled by what we call the Olympic Games. Okay, so that's why the Olympic Games are still now every four years, and that was held in Athens. So this is a, a huge tradition. So Paul is using this tradition as an illustration for how our spiritual life should be. This powerful imagery is one of intentionality, it's one of commitment, it's one of direction, it's one of purpose, it's one of whole of life. Because when you committed yourself to the task of being an athlete, that was your thing. You were completely set apart for that purpose. A little bit like professionals are today. So Paul says, let's pick up again and see what it is that we're saying. We'll reflect on this a moment. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. What Paul is saying is that this is not a spectator sport. This thing called life, this thing called our Christian faith, 
is not a spectator sport. And in the words of uh, musician Neil Young, it's better to burn out than fade away, isn't it? It's these things where we look at life and we say, I only got one crack at this and I want to do it well because there's no second chances. And what Paul is inviting us to do is to look at these athletes and say to ourselves, what can I do that allows me to serve the purpose that God has for me until the day that I die? One of the things that is a significant change socially that's occurred within our lifetimes is the extended years in which we live. The majority of our mindset is wrapped up in this idea that we will retire at 65, and if you're alive at 70, you know, God bless you, you're doing pretty well. Um, what sociologists have told us, and the facts being true in our elderly population, is that we can expect now, if you are a woman, you can expect now, if you hit the age of 30, that you should be able to hit the age of 86 on average, okay? And men are a few years behind because of all the housework we do, okay? <laughs> all right, yeah, a few years behind. So what we're saying, being told, is that we have a good 20 years after retirement. And this is a whole new area of life to be explored, a whole new area of life to be explored. About 15 years ago, a guy called Bob Buford put a book out called Half Time. He's a Christian guy, and he wrote really accurately towards the Christian community, saying, listen, don't, don't spend your life in haphazard pursuits of things that are going to have no meaning to you or anyone else in the future. What you should be doing is taking your 20 extra years, take your experience, your wisdom, your wealth, your resources, your connections, business and relationships and your family and take them on a journey with you to allow them to see what it is that looks like a life well lived. Don't be drawn into the idea that life is all about just fulfilling my pleasure tank once you get to a certain age and stage because that is a lie that will rob you of purpose, it'll rob you of significance, rob you of meaning and it'll rob you ultimately of joy. Bob Buford also wrote another book about five years later called Stuck in Halftime. Stuck in Halftime. What he realized is that it's very, very hard to break yourself out of the cycle that's been built into the Western world of finishing, retiring, and sort of entering into things that are more leisure and pleasure. And he's identified just how challenging that is. And I know that for us within a Christian community, it can be equally challenging because our general direction follows the ways that society follows. If you turn up to a dinner party one night and say, guess what, I've just sold the something, sold the, the motorhome or sold the batch, and uh, me and the wife are going to go off and serve in this area for a few years to do this, this, and this overseas, that will fly in contradiction to the majority of momentum around that dinner table. You see, the thing is that we've been given an opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, because we only get one crack at it, to put our lives into a place where it all counts where it all counts from beginning to end. Uh, author and one of my favorite pastors, John Ortberg, um, in one of his books, wrote this illustration, which has been powerfully used around the world, I must say. He was observing his children playing the game Monopoly. We've all played Monopoly, haven't we, at some stage? Know what it's about? The whole idea is that you whip, your, whip, your uh, whip people around you by buying up all the property that is owned on this board game. And so he was watching his children playing this game. And after a couple of hours, 
one of the kids jumped up and down and said, I've won, I've won, I've won, I own it all. And uh, he was pretty excited about this. And then mum came in and says, okay, kids, the game's over. Put it all back in the box. Put it all back in the box. And Ortberg used that as an illustration to say that with our lives, it all goes back in the box. Everything we own, everything we own. I've noticed that hearses don't have tow bars. They don't take anything with you when, you when you leave this world. It all goes back in the box. And it's here that we are, are desperately trying to, to, to prove that that theory is wrong by thinking we take it with us. What we can do is take whatever it is that we've given to God with us. And that's the most important thing of eternal value that we take. Um, a few years ago, I was chatting with a friend of mine, Dave Harwood. He's a guy I do hunting with, but Dave's got a, a building company, Harwood Homes, over at Papamaya, and I'll charge him 20 bucks for the, for the advert. But um, I was chatting with Dave, and I, he was talking about work and et cetera, et cetera, as we did around the campfire. And I said, mate, you've got a really hard job. I said, to build somebody a home is challenging in itself. To hand them the key and it's all nice and neat and tidy is one thing. But I said, then you've got the master bill guarantee, which is 10 years. It says that for 10 years, the owner of the house can come back to you and say, this is broken. This isn't working. This is falling down. And he goes, yeah, that's the hardest part of the job. He said, as my business is growing, he said, it's all very well to have more building teams out there building more houses over a year. But he said, I have to have a supplementary team that follows up on all the things that break down and get that service so that his reputation as a builder is maintained. And then he said something really, really wise. I just thought, this is, this is really, really simple, but so true. He said, everything we own is desperately trying to get back into the ground where it came from. Everything we own is desperately trying to get back into the ground where it came from. What he was saying, that everything is designed to break down. And even, even the bricks and mortar that your home is built out, if uh, left unattended, they will just simply dissolve back into the ground. So we water blast them, we paint them, we do whatever we can to try to sustain a longer period of time for them to be out of the ground. But left to themselves, everything we own, including ourselves, returns to the ground where it came from. And so for us to take a view of life that is scriptural, we have to live with these truths as not being something we fear, but something that are part of the measuring system of our lives, part of the measuring system of our lives. And uh, I know for myself, when I hit the age of about 45, all of a sudden I went through this metamorphosis where I realized that time is short, you know? Up to the age of 45, you were just, you know, crazy and bulletproof. And nothing was going to get in the way. Everything was always on the up and your body was still strong. And now you get out of bed in the morning, you want to get back into it again. You know, it's, it, time just starts to erode away this sense in which you've got all the time in the world, and that's not true. And I'm sure that you may have seen this or had this experience yourself, but you talk to somebody who, by the grace of God, has been told they have a certain amount of time to live and is having those reconciling conversations with people, I guarantee you would have heard them say this. They would have said, life is short. Life is short. And we know that life is short, but we keep living as if, Life is all about me and it's all about now and it's never going to end. Death is sort of this inconvenience. Inconvenience. What Paul is saying is that we need to run with purpose. 
So what does Paul say? Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, we can be the, the best citizen of heaven on earth and then we can forget about everything that we've been and valued and disqualify ourselves for the prize. The prize not necessarily being salvation here, but the prize being that crown of faithfulness that is given to those who have persevered to the end. And Paul talks about it in the sense of, of running aimlessly. You know, how do we determine what the direction of our life is going to be? How are we determining that? Are we setting goals that are strategic for our lives to be outworked in a way that is meaningful, purposeful, going from success to significance? That's a huge transition. Success to significance. Success is every time you go to the ATM and you see what your balance is and it's got lots of, lots of numbers on it, hopefully not overdraft on the other side of it. Um, that tells you you're successful. But significance is a whole new, whole new set of measures. And we can run aimlessly. We run aimlessly by going, what are you going to do next year? I don't know. A little bit more of the same. Well, what's the same? Well, you know, some mates said that we should go fishing, so I went fishing. Some mates said I should do this, so I did that. And, uh, you know, gee, maybe the fence needs a paint. Oh, okay, that's cool. Um, glad you'll be able to celebrate that. A boxer beating the air, Paul says. So a boxer beats the air, nothing changes, right? You can beat the air all you want, you will not create a hurricane. Okay? You will not create a hurricane. You will not change the nature of the air. It will not become visible from invisible. It will not uh, respond in any, any way. You're just sort of exercising your life in a way that is relatively meaningless. That's what Paul is trying to describe. And the simplicity of this argument is that everything that the world tells us to do takes us in this direction of aimlessness and beating the air. The whole goal of our government is to have us all be nice, polite people living in the suburbs of Bethlehem, keeping away from crime, raising our perfect children, and not interfering with anything. We have been told that this is what good citizenship is. Paul is telling us completely the opposite. Our citizenship is to be a force that changes the world for Christ, not just get in the flow of that river that leads us to a nice shiny jewelry box where we get carted off to the cemetery. We are called to make a difference and to spend our lives wisely and well. No beating the air, no running aimlessly. Paul himself probably has the best words for this. And I took these out of uh, his letter to Timothy, the one that he wrote from prison. Okay, just try and imagine this. Paul's in prison and he's writing these letters knowing these will be the last contacts that he has with some of his closest friends. And he writes this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And you can see the illustration that he uses here. You know, I fought the good fight. He didn't fight the air. He engaged in a spiritual battle which caused him to run against the flow of the world. That's a spiritual battle. Every time that you implement a kingdom value in your life that is contrary to what it is society says that you should be doing. Every time you're generous, uh, every time you're forgiving, every time you're loving, 
Every time you reach out when others hold back. Every time you touch somebody's life who others won't touch. All of that is a spiritual battle which pushes against the flow of the tide of what society is. That's what Paul was saying when he says, I fought the good fight. He says, I've finished the race. He didn't run aimlessly. He ran with purpose and he ran with a direction. He sought a goal and he tried the best that he could to set a goal which would change people's lives. Well, we can never argue with a result with Paul, can we? Not only did he establish all these churches, but we read his literature every day in Scripture. Finally, he says, I've kept the faith. Kept the faith. These are powerful, powerful words. And um, with our one and only lives, these should be the things that we have written for ourselves right down the far end of that finishing line. So that your father can get alongside you as he's doing probably right now and just says, don't worry about what the rest of them say. Just run as fast as you can. Just run as fast as you can. You might not win, but there's nothing wrong with getting second, third, fourth or fifth if you're running as fast as you can. And that's what Paul wants because he knows it's the best thing for us. Let's stand for prayer. God, we come before you with our imperfections sort of feeling like they're on right at the top of our mind at the moment because we all know that um, it's a challenge to walk in the opposite spirit to the way of the world. And yet Paul says, don't give up. Keep pushing back. Don't give up. Keep focusing on the end result. Don't give up. Ensure that you take everything that you've been given and utilize it to build the kingdom. Don't give up, because time is short. Lord, we know that we've been given um, a tremendous privilege by being born in this country, and particularly as we see the world around us. So, Lord, we we know that uh, to whom much is given, much is required. In fact, your word says, to whom much is given, much is demanded. And so it's at that level, Lord, of saying, you are Lord. You are Lord. Help me to re-engage with you again. In light of all these shutdowns and lockdowns, um, this is not meant to be a put-down, but it's all about us re-engaging our life with your purpose. As we emerge from this sort of hibernation of 2020, we pray, Lord God, that you would realign our faith with your purpose, realign our faith and our actions with your word, that we might run the good race, we might fight the good fight, we might keep the faith. We ask all this. In Jesus' name, amen.